This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, we have David Waxman here with us today. David has nearly two decades of experience um, as a technology entrepreneur. He graduated um, from MIT's Media Lab in 1995, and he went off and co-founded Firefly. He was an early pioneer. Um, the company was an early pioneer in the personalization and privacy technology world. And in 1995, you can imagine there was probably a lot of issues with um, privacy um, on the Internet. That company was acquired by Microsoft three years later in 1998. And it became the company's flag- flagship product um, called Microsoft Passport. After Fire- Firefly, David co-founded PeoplePC. How many people know PeoplePC? Everybody would have raised their hand 10 years ago because this company was everywhere. It was in the news. It was one of the hottest companies in the country. Uh, PeoplePC um, was in the process of simplifying this, this, this thing called getting on the Internet. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to believe, even for me, and I lived through it, that there was just a lot of people at that time that weren't online. And so this idea with PeoplePC was we'll make it super, super easy for you to get online. Ended up serving over 600,000 subscribers, which is a huge number, um, as well as big companies. So they also worked with Ford Motor Company, Vivendi, Delta Airlines, et cetera. Company went public in 2001, um, and it was acquired by Earthlink a year later in 2002. Three years later, David Coke founded Spotrunner which was an L.A.-based company. It was focused on revolutionizing the way advertisements were created, planned, bought, and sold. He left Spotrunner and decided to focus on the L.A. entrepreneurial ecosystem. So a lot of the folks I bring in here, they have a great run professionally. They make good money for themselves and their family and their coworkers, um, and then a number of them give back to the community. David is, is no exception there. He's helping a number of um, prominent accelerators in L.A. right now, Amplify, Launchpad, which I'm involved with, um, as well as Mucker Labs. Those are all three great accelerator programs. He's also a principal at a VC fund, so he's gone from entrepreneur to investor. His VC fund is uh, 10110, and they have a couple different mantras. One of the ones that, um, I, that struck me was, we believe in audacious ideas backed by founders who have the conviction to make them happen. That's what you look for when you're a venture investor. And like everyone I bring in here, David isn't just you know, this guy that made a bunch of money and had a bunch of success professionally. He also has a very healthy and happy home life uh, with his wife and his three lovely children. And apparently he has an, a ludicrous number of pets. So maybe we'll find out what, what that really means. Let's welcome David to our class. Hello, is this thing on? Good. Um, hi. Thank you, John. You just gave about half my talk, so I'm glad you left a little bit for me. Um, John said that it would be really helpful for me to, to kind of tell it like it is and, and maybe fess up to some stuff about what, what it's actually like to be an entrepreneur. And um, he said if I was able to touch a student, that would be, then I will have done my job. So I'm going to actually start with something that's dogged me forever. How many people in here are afraid of public speaking? How many people in here are afraid of raising their hand to say that they're afraid of public speaking? <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, you're in good company. We're in good company. Um, the internet told me, I'm not sure if it was true, but that all of these people had significant fear of public speaking. And I'm not talking about little, like, I get the butterflies. I'm talking about, like, I want to puke and die kind of feeling. And it's taken me years. For better or for worse, I chose a profession that requires that I do pitches and talk to people, and I had to figure out a lot of mechanisms to deal with it. But if you're one of those people, just know that you can actually survive public speaking. It doesn't have to be closed to you. Um, So why am I here if I hate public speaking? Because all of the money that I'm getting paid. No, I'm not actually getting paid any money whatsoever um, to be here. I don't even think I'm getting gas money. Uh, no, no gas money. So, uh, so that's you know, and, and the real answer is because John asked me to, and I and actually, I, I did this whole warm up with the public speaking, not just because I wanted to tell you about that, because there's a really I think important lesson in here, which is that. The, an important thing to do when you're an entrepreneur, to be an entrepreneur, is to be able to just do. And when John asked me, I applied my maxim, when in doubt, 
do. And this is particularly, of course, you have to do that with a little bit of you know, moderation. But if the thing that's holding you back is fear, which sometimes presents as kind of procrastination or laziness or I don't kind of want to, um, if you don't have a good reason for not doing something, then inaction is is a bad idea. And just do the math. The math is very simple. If you do something, let's say that I have a 50-50 chance today of completely blowing up on stage and throwing up and being terribly, terribly embarrassed. Well, that's, you know, that's half, that's a 50-50 chance. That's The other half is that maybe I'll actually say something useful to somebody and they'll have a better career or something good will come of it. Um, so I have, a, I have a chance of failure. But if I don't come, if I don't show up, if I don't do, nothing happens. I have no chance of making a positive impact. So there's a lot of decisions like that when you're an entrepreneur that you have to make. You just have to show up. And God knows it's an extremely scary job to take on. And uh, anyone who tells you that being an entrepreneur is not scary is either a liar or um, potentially a sociopath. Um, So I don't have a lot of these uh, tablets of stone, but this is one that I'm going to come back to a couple of times. So uh, let's start with a little bit about me. And, And John did a lot, but so in the beginning, I um, that's the computer I learned how to program on. Uh, it didn't blow up very well, but it's an Eclipse uh, Data General. It was probably old for me. I'm not actually that old. It was it was probably old at the time uh, that I got to know it. Um, I grew up in Berkeley, um, and uh, but should I tell you more about the pets? No, I'll do that later. I grew up in Berkeley, and and uh, it's important because growing up in Berkeley in the in the 1970s and 80s, I didn't have any conception of capitalism. I didn't know that every kid in the nation didn't have Malcolm X's birthday off. I didn't know that every kid in the nation didn't play in Ho Chi Minh Park, which I did when I was a little kid. And before I ever knew who Ho Chi Minh, how many people in here know who Ho Chi Minh is? Oh, good. Um, so, you know, I, I, and every grown-up I knew, every adult who was around me, in my mind, fell into one of two categories. They were either an educator or they were a shrink. Like all my parents' friends were either professors, teachers, or psychotherapists. And then I kind of had this vague idea that on the periphery there were doctors and firemen and policemen, because I sort of saw them around. But I, I never saw business people. And business people in Berkeley, in my circle, in my little bubble, were, were kind of considered the bad guys. Um, and certainly, I, when I thought of starting companies, I thought, if you had said to me in 1982, David, what does it mean to start a company? I would have thought you meant starting a shop on the store that did dry cleaning. I would have had no conception of starting a corporation. So I, um, I went to Berkeley, that other UC up, up there, and I majored in music which my dad thought was a really, really practical idea. Um, and I said, you know, that was my passion. And, and in high school, I had learned how to program. And I thought programming was cool. And actually, I, I had some, some day jobs where I made a little money programming on the side, um, and more than my friends who were slinging pizza. But I'd never thought of programming as a career. I thought that I'd be a musician. And I played in bands, and I, and I majored in music. And I met this guy my junior year. His name is David Wessel. He's still a professor at Berkeley. And he became a mentor to me. Uh, which brings me to another really important message, which is having mentors is tremendously important. My whole career, there have been people who have helped me. Starting, well, not just starting with this guy. I won't bore you with my high school math teacher. But this guy, David Wessel, totally changed my life. And we'll, we'll see it in a little bit. We wrote a paper together for uh, the Acoustic Society Journal. We, uh, we went on a road trip together to present the paper. And ultimately, he got me my first job. Um, I, I was talking to someone recently about this. I was prepping for this talk. And I showed her this slide. And she said, be, be careful to tell them that when you get a mentor, it doesn't have to be reciprocal. So this woman who was looking at it said, she, she went through the Hollywood experience. She's an agent. And she said, some of my best mentors never knew they were my mentors. What was important was not so much the counseling. We, just, we didn't sit down and have talks. But being near people who were really, really good at what they do and being close enough to watch them day in and day out and see how they operate was tremendously helpful for her. And I, I think that's a very good point. You don't have to find a mentor and get their permission if if one won't give you their permission, you can just take it. Um, so after college, and 
I had majored in music, and this guy did computer music, which is something that I got into. He got me a job in France at a place called IRCOM. And that, uh, that there's a picture of an anechoic chamber. So it's a chamber, it's a room with no echoes. And uh, if you stand back to back with a friend and scream, you can't hear each other because there's no sound reflection off the walls. It's really, it's really terribly cool. Um, but IRCOM is something, part of the French government, it's actually affiliated with something called the Pompidou Center. And it's a research and development uh, organization f- around computer, computers, music, and sound. So I was there actually as part of the education department teaching composers, many of whom were much older and more experienced than me, how to use technology. So I'd have these guys, guys who are, at least in my circle, who are quite famous, come by and I would show them how to do sound recording and um, sound synthesis and MIDI and all the things that, that, uh, that I had to show them. And IRCOM was an interesting place because it's part of the Pompidou Center, but it's not very visible. And it's kind of political. It's part of the Ministry of Culture. And it came, there came a time when IRCOM's bosses started getting a little bit of heat for not really showing off what they did. And so they said, well, we need to get, we, we need to do something public. We need to do something in the Pompidou Center. And we need to put it out there. And Everybody looked around, and nobody wanted the job. Basically, it, most people thought, well, I'm a researcher, and maybe you guys know some academics who are like that. I'm a researcher. I'm in my lab. I'm making music. I'm making compositions. I'm studying psychoacoustics, whatever. I don't want to do this thing for a museum. And the bottle spun, and the most junior person in the organization who happened to be in the education department was me, and that's where it stopped. And they said, you've got to go do something. Just go do something for the Pompidou Center. I said, Okay. Just do, you know, just going to go do it. And I paired up with a friend, and at the time I was really interested in interactive music, so we did a, basically what would be now called an interactive music installation with a MIDI piano, and you could wave your arms and things played, and there was feedback, and we stuck it in the Pompidou Center, and it was a big success. And what, no one had really, what I didn't really grok before I did it is that the Pompidou Center at the time, and maybe still, is the most trafficked museum on the planet. So that because it's free and it's in the middle of Paris, it actually gets more foot traffic than the Louvre, or it did, at least back then. So it was really a trial by fire. And this thing that nobody wanted to do, that nobody wanted to take on, ended up defining me, basically, or defining my time at IRCOM. And people, if you go back to IRCOM today and you say, who is David Waxman, they'll say, oh, he's that guy who did the, the first thing for the Pompidou Center. Um, and they'll say it in French, but they'll say it. <laughs> And it also led to finding another mentor. So I was, had this exhibition was up for an entire summer, and a visiting professor from MIT came uh, named Totten Macover, and he saw my work, and he said, I just got a bunch of grant money, and I'd love for you to come and be in my group, and it's a free ride, full scholarship, we'll give you a stipend, and you can come, and we're funded by Sega, so if you want to do some of this music game stuff, that'd be awesome. And so... Following my maxim, I said no. Um, I said no. And uh, that was a little bit of a silly decision. I, I, I was living with someone, I was living with a woman at the time who I liked a lot, and I had this, and I lived in Paris, which was really cool, and I made good money, which by the way was really fun to tell my dad, and did I already say that? Um, and I didn't want to leave, and I thought, well, why would I want to go to MIT? And fortunately, because it, I really think it was the right thing, in retrospect, a bunch of people, including this girl who maybe wanted to get rid of me, jumped in and said, no, you idiot, you don't say no to an offer like that. You take it. You take an offer like that. So I meekly called back Todd, and I said, uh, remember that, that no that I gave you? I'd like to change it to a yes, please. And I had to wait then about four months or three, maybe it was three months, to see if the other person whose slot he had given it to, or, or to see if money would free up to make a spot for me. And so it was, it was a, almost a counterexample of my maxim that fortunately um, I ended up uh, you know, avoiding that disaster. And uh, thanks to that girl, who is now married with someone else and lives in Bosnia. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, so I was at the Media Lab, 
And I was having fun. I was making instruments, and I was meeting people who were just so crazy smart. I mean, they're really, it was, it was great to be in a place where I felt like the dumbest guy in the room. And I say that not, not self-deprecatingly. I say that because there really were people who just made me feel dumb. And I've actually found in my career since that hiring people who are smarter than you or who are better than you at something is a really, really good idea. And if you've got the sort of stomach to be in, to be comfortable with that, those people then attract other smart people, and those smart people attract other smart people. And I think one feature of all the companies that I've done, and I'll talk about this, is that I've had really, really good people and teams that other people talk about as being a great team. And I think that comes from always wanting to surround myself with people who I could learn from and who've, who were, frankly, just better than me at many things. You know. Um, so I was there for a master's degree, and I was about a semester and a half in, and not knowing what I was going to do. The obvious thing, the easy thing, would have been to stay for a PhD. I was comfortable in academia. I had known that all my life. Um, and, uh, and it was on offer. And uh, I was on an airplane. It was like the semester, like semester break between my second year, uh, first and second semesters. And, uh, and there was this guy sitting two seats over from me. And for about five, we were flying from San Francisco to Boston. And for about two hours, we didn't say anything to one another. There was a, a woman in, in between who was his girlfriend. And I didn't think much of him. And apparently, he didn't think much of me. And, but about five of the six hours, about five hours in of the six hours of that return flight, we started talking. And it turned out that we had a lot of things in common and that we had actually some friends in common and even that we had been at the same New Year's Eve party but just hadn't met. And this guy, his name was Nick Grauf, and he was the uh, graduating. He was at the same position in his uh, school career, but he was at Harvard Business School. And, uh, and he said, you know, I really, this still happens today. He said, I really need a tech guy to start a company. Except he said it before everybody used to say it. Like in his class in 1995, most Harvard Business School graduates went to Wall Street or they went to McKinsey or they went to BCG or one of the consulting companies. I don't know if anybody else from his class, um, save you know, maybe one, started a company at least right out of school. The next year, Dave Goldberg and some other folks, Sheryl Sandberg, were, were there. And, but um, his year, he was like, I'm going to start a company. And so that was really, really important for me because, as I said before, I grew up in a, my world was like academia, uh, some psychotherapy, you know. <laughs> the things that I knew from Berkeley were, were this, the idea of starting a company was just beyond my scope. And it was not like it is today where everybody's starting a company and everybody's talking about the cult of the founder and the, you know, this, this kind of pop culture that we have around starting companies didn't exist yet. Um, the internet started to exist and it was really cool and I knew that. Um, and, but this guy had the conviction to go out and say, let's start a company. And so we sat and we ate pizza and we had tons of ideas we had, you know, we were going. We 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 were called. I think our first incorporation papers were as Virtual Bell Corporation because we wanted to be a Yellow Pages. And at one point in one of these late night bull sessions, we came up with an idea that sounded kind of familiar, um, and it was a music recommendation service. And I decided, I was like, huh, that sounds that sounds like a technology I heard of at the Media Lab. And just to kind of show you how naive I was, I, I went to the group who had developed this technology, and I said, hey, can you give me all your papers and all your technology and your source code so I can look at it? And they're they like, why? And I said, because I want to start a company with it. And they said, well, we're going to start a company with it. And so we all got into a room with Nick and this team, who's under a professor named Patty Moss, and we sat down. And after a little juggling and meeting of the minds, we all decided to start a company together. Um, there were there were five of us, um, and by the way, we met with Mitch Kapoor early on when we were start hatching this company, and he was in Boston at the time. Mitch, do you guys know who Mitch Kapoor is? He's a very he was the founder of Lotus Corporation, and he's a very well known investor. And he said it'll never work with five founders; it's impossible, and uh, he was wrong. But but together we founded this company called Firefly. And I always wonder what would have happened to me if that 
airplane ticket number had been different or a different gate agent had been working or if I had been sitting in a different seat or if I didn't reach out and say, hey, dude, how are you? Because, <laughs> you know, through that company I met my wife and I have had children and, you know, as you say, dogs and things like that that probably wouldn't have ever crossed my path. Um, so, um, you know, and startups are about doing. So we didn't know anything. Nobody knew anything about how to be on the Internet. Um, Nick, fortunately, knew a little bit about fundraising, and we, we managed to get Atlas Ventures to give us a little bit of money, and uh, which actually seemed like a hell of a lot of money. I think it was a million dollars. It was just an amazing to even hold the check. Um, and we hunkered down, and we made this music recommendation site, and I was in charge of the, sort of the front end, and uh, some other smarter-than-me guys were in charge of the back end doing... And the music recommendation was based on this technology, which has since become pretty common, called collaborative filtering. So... Collaborative filtering works like this. If, if you like three bands and you have those three bands, you like them in common, then it's possible that the fourth thing that you like is also something that you'll like. And I'm sorry, I don't know your names. But um, you see this on Amazon all the time now. It says people like you also like these other things. And so we made this site where you could put in, you'd like type in your bands and you'd list what you liked in albums. And it would say, oh, you might also like to try this. And people loved it. It was a very successful site. And then something else happened that was kind of surprising to us, which is in addition to finding music recommendations, people found each other. People found they would we, we enabled some features that had people able to talk to each talk with each other. And so we'd say they'd say, hey you like these two bands? I like these two bands. We had chat rooms and we had people home pages and it became a community. Um, which was wonderful, and it scared the shit out of me because all of a sudden I, as the front end guy, ran this community, and it was very—they were very vocal. I, you guys know what online communities are like, but I didn't back then, and uh, I was—I got to the point where every time I'd make a change, I knew that uh, you know a hundred or a thousand or several thousand people would yell at me, and so <laughs> I just wrung my hands all the time and walked around the block and was really just sick to my stomach most of the time through the second half of Firefly. Um, as John said, um, we, uh, we got into privacy, or we, we, we realized that we were collecting this preference data, and people were telling us some of their, you know, they were telling us what bands they liked, and ultimately we added books and we added music, so people were telling us a lot about the things that they liked, and nobody really was thinking about privacy back in those days, so we we started to work on that problem, and we worked with the government, and we worked with the P3P, and we made actually some progress in, in getting some stuff enacted. Uh, and we also made a product called the Passport. And that was the idea was that you'd have a data wallet, and you'd go from site to site, and you could <laughs> say, hi, site, I'm here, and here are all my preferences I'm going to share with you so you can give me some value in return. And the hope was that... that then I'd get a receipt, and you know it was like Facebook Connect, but without all the privacy ickiness. Uh, and Microsoft thought that that was a great idea, and they bought our company in 1998. So, uh, unfortunately, they didn't execute it exactly like I would have executed it. But one wise founder told me, "Once you sell your company, you don't own it anymore," and that's something that I had to learn. So I didn't go to Microsoft. So I didn't just do. Um, because the woman who's now my wife had a, her own business in New York and it just wasn't working. My, my co-founders remind me of that all the time. So I have what I call the lost year. Um, I had... Um, I hope you guys know who that is. Okay, good. Um, it's interesting, I wasn't... I made more money than I thought I'd ever make. It wasn't astronomical, but it was a lot. And it was more than the kid growing up in Berkeley ever kind of imagined. And I had always thought, well, if I get a lot of money, then I'm going to be able to write the Great American Symphony, and I'm going to be you know, doing philanthropic great deeds, and I'm going to maybe, I don't know, build a castle. I don't know what I'll do. But I thought that I would do all this great stuff, and I was just so friggin' lost. I had no idea what to do with myself. And so what I really did is I got very, 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 very good at darts. Um, uh, 
So that was kind of a negative example of the just do thing, because in, in retrospect, I kind of wish I had gone to Microsoft. It wasn't really possible, so there were good reasons that I didn't do it, and I'm pretty happy I stayed with the person I stayed with. But I didn't get the experience of being at Microsoft, frankly, at its peak. It was they were on top of the world then. It's hard to it's really hard to imagine that right now, but they were worth they were the the most valuable company on the planet and they all the best engineers were going there and it was they were dominant um, in nineteen ninety eight. But instead I got good at darts. So after that, um, I hooked up with Nick again after he got released from Microsoft. And we started talking about what our next thing would be. And we just did the same strategy as before. We locked ourselves in a room with pizza, and we thought of what would be a good thing to do. And as John said, those, in those days, getting online was not a trivial matter. It was not something that your grandma could do very easily. Um, there, you know, Apple had not come back yet. And so it was, it was a matter of, you know, you had to pick through a sea of, of uh, PC vendors, and you had to find the right ISP service, and it was, it was a lot. Um, and so we thought that we would address that issue by putting together a bundle. And you did a great job explaining it. I should have hired you back then. Um, uh, and uh, we, we just worked really hard to make it easy. So we, we put together the PC and the ISP. And we, you know, as John said, we were kind of everywhere. We went out on a consumer push and really tried to blow out the doors. And we spent a lot of money on television advertising and direct mail advertising and other forms of traditional, what was then called traditional advertising. And we had a strange pivot, which was we got this email to info at peoplepc.com from Mr. So-and-so, whose name I don't remember, CIO Ford Motor Company. And he said, you know, could you talk to me? Because our employees, our 300 and some odd thousand employees, don't have access to the internet. They they don't have desks at work. They have forklifts and welding machinery, and they they work on factory floors. And when Jack Nasser, our CEO, wants to send them all an email, he can't. And when our HR department wants to send everybody a memo, they can't. So can you come and maybe do this program for us, or would you like to pitch? And we said, sure, we can do that. We were 20 people, and Ford was, and like it is now, a global organization. And we went head-to-head with Dell and Hewlett-Packard and um, Toshiba and a couple others, and we won it. It was a, th- a 300-some-odd-million-dollar contract um, to provide subsidized PCs for all of Ford's employees worldwide. We then got a similar deal with Vivendi Universal and um, Delta Airlines and New York Times and some other ones that, that John mentioned. Um, and I, I gotta say, so the, the day we announced this deal, um, we, it was kind of a big deal for Ford. They wanted to make press out of it too, because they were giving their employees a, a great benefit and pulling them into the internet age. And so they held this event after much wrangling in the Union Hall in Detroit. And the COO and I were sitting next to each other. And up on stage, you had Carly Fiorina, who was then the CEO of Hewlett Packard, and who was supplying the computers, because we never actually made computers, we just put we assembled things. Uh, Jack Nasser, who was the CEO of Ford Motor Company. Bill Ford, who was the, the Ford of Ford Motor Company and the chairman, I believe. Um, the head of the UAW. And Nick. And I looked at, <laughs> I looked at the COO and I said, well, how do we get here? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and it was, it was insane. It was, and it made us so high. We were just, just, we had all this work to do, and it was practically impossible. And we kept breaking things. We had the, the, the postal service in, in southern Michigan, or wherever it is, Lansing, Michigan. We broke it. We broke UPS in Michigan. We broke FedEx in Michigan. Because we were shipping all these computers, and they weren't used to, to doing all this. And... Um, and it was just completely nuts. And we were having the time of our lives. And we were headed towards what then was the absolute mecca of startup existence, the public offering. Um, if you were around in the 90s, the thing to do was to go public. That was everybody's dream. And it would make, every, make you rich, 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 rich. Um, and we did. We went public in, not 2001, we went public in 
but I don't think anyone went public in 2001. <laughs> but we were one of the last companies out, and we, we went public in August of 2000, and it was a disaster. Um, it was no fun at all to be public, because right after we went out, the market tanked, and people who were totally fine with a company that wasn't making profit but was having, had revenue were no longer totally fine with that idea at all. And our stock price took a big hit, and employees who had options that were supposed to be worth a lot saw their options getting worse, worth less. And it was really tough. It was, um, it was no fun. So it was a be careful of what you wish for kind of moment. Um, but we pulled through, and, um, and that was kind of the lesson I, I learned, which is you sort of almost always pull through. Now, there's an exception, which I learned later. But at the time, I thought you always pull through if you just tried hard enough. And, um, and Earthlink bought the company, and they ran it very, very profitably for 10 years. I think they still run it. If you go to peoplepc.com, there's still a site there. It's just there aren't very many people left who, who use dial-up service. So after that deal, I had a kid, which was nice. And I got a corporate gig. Um, I had set up PeoplePC's offices in, um, in Europe because Ford was an international company, Vivendi was an international company. We had to have operations in Europe. And some friends of mine knew this, and Kodak bought a company which was then called Ophoto, which then became Kodak EasyShare Gallery and which has since become Shutterfly because Kodak went under. Um, but at the time, they had just bought this company, and it was only operating domestically, and they said, can you help us open this in Europe? Because we need to have, we're an international company. We don't do just domestic. And, uh, and it was a great gig. It was like many of the things you get with a startup without many of the worries that you get with a startup. Because I was the first guy on the ground, but I had money, I had a brand, I had a product, and all I had to do was just sell it and get things set up. So it was really fun. And I had a little bicycle, and we lived in Amsterdam, which is where the headquarters were. And I had a house on a canal with uh, my dog and my wife and my kid, and, and it was beautiful. Um, and it taught me actually a really important lesson about disruption and technology. Because this, so this was 2003, I believe. And digital photography had taken off, but not yet killed traditional photography. And no one was sure exactly when it would happen, but everybody knew it was going to happen. But we were the classic case of innovator's dilemma. We were at this, I was at this company, and they were really smart people. It wasn't like they were dummies or anything. They were great, great people there. But to, it's very, very hard to see when you're making $4 billion in film and developing how things are going to disappear on you. And, and to like take the idea of that $4 billion and maybe cast it aside and do something completely different. Now, actually, I don't think Ophoto or which Easy Share Gallery was the answer. But they had lots of IP. They had uh, a camera business. They could have been Kodak inside. They could have tried things, but they didn't try things because the people who were sitting on $4 billion worth of revenue said, we have an important business to run. Get out of my face so we can do this and make money. And I found that this, I didn't draw great. I'm not great at drawing, but that people kind of think linearly. So you kind of imagine that the future is going to be the trend that you saw in the past. And for them, they said, yeah, our market share is declining because it declined a little bit last month and the month before that. And we can see that this thing is coming. And they sort of project out to the future. But what really happens and what really happened with them is this. That, and if I would have been better if I could have drawn a better curve, but you know, they, they were still looking way out there, but what actually happened is a cliff came much, much sooner. And if you look at the music industry, the newspaper industry, the, well, the, this digital photography industry, and I think soon maybe the video industry, these, this, this is what happens in disruption. People see a little bit of decline, they fret, they wring their hands, they talk about it, they see, they imagine the runway to be X, and what happens is the thing falls off a cliff because there's a, an inflection point where something actually becomes mass market. There, be, there was an inflection point where, where photography, it made absolutely no sense to buy a, a, a regular film camera because the new technology was so good that 
you know, why would you ever pay for film and not have your photos ready immediately? It made no sense. So um, Kodak has since gone bankrupt, which is really sad for me because I think they had a great brand and they had it for over 100 years. And, um, and it, you know, it was, it was they, they might have been able to do better, but it's easy to backseat drive or Monday morning quarterback. So after that, um, I uh, got a call from Nick. He said, I've got, an, I've got another idea. This one we didn't brew up in his kitchen. He had already kind of brewed it up. He was down in L.A., and he said, I've got this idea for a company called Spot Runner. And it, it, was, it didn't work out, but it was a really good idea, I think. And I'll, you know, at least I, I think so. Um, the Internet, so one of the wonderful things about seeing the, the Internet and this technology revolution happen in my lifetime, my career, is so many things have become democratized. Things that were expensive and exclusive have become much, much less expensive and less exclusive. So when I was doing music, to record an album, you had to have a studio that cost $800,000, a million dollars, $1.5 million, with a big soundboard and all that stuff and a 24-track recorder. Now my Macintosh does way more, right? Um, you know, before... Before the internet, you've, if you wanted to get a newsletter out there, you had to print it, and it costs a lot of money. And now you don't have to do that. And this is, I guess, obvious in hindsight, in retrospect, but it wasn't. It's kind of been an amazing thing to watch. And what we wanted to do with Spotrunner was democratize the way advertising was available. So we said, well, if Domino's Pizza can be on television, why can't Joe's Pizza be on television? And you know, wh- how come? And it's because Domino buys nationally, they're a, big, they're a big company, they can amortize the cost of doing their advertisements, and they have, you know, the, they have the scale to do it. And we thought, well, maybe there's a fix for that. Maybe we can do something about that. And so there were two problems to address. One was, how do we make an ad that's cheap but doesn't look cheap? And the other was, how do we make a media plan where the media is being spent in a focused area and not spread out to where the customers aren't? Because... If, if, if you're advertising for pizza and you're advertising 50 miles away from Joe's Pizza, those people aren't likely to come over and eat. Um, so we were actually able to crack both those problems, or at least address both those problems. We, we addressed the first one by making um, templated ads. We had a library of thousands of templated ads. And people could come by and pick the one for them, and we would customize it for them. And it actually turned out that the infrastructure was there to address the media problem as well. So with cable television, you can buy a spot in just Beverly Hills and not West Hollywood um, on a cable channel. So you can buy, and the, the prices at least don't seem very high. So you can buy a spot on CNN in the late afternoon in Beverly Hills, maybe for 50 bucks, something like that. Turns out the CPMs aren't great, but that's another another story. Um, but uh, so, so we had that going, and... and uh, we were just really, we were a hot company. We raised a lot of money. Um, Google made an acquisition in the space of a company called DMARC Communications, which was doing something similar to what we were doing in, in radio, but it made us very strategic uh, and you know, potentially important to some big companies. And, um, and that was, that was a, you know, made it very kind of a high-pressure environment. And unfortunately, um, when... Uh, when 2008 happened and the economy crashed, we, we couldn't recover. We were not in a position to recover, and that that company didn't make it. So today, it still exists as an organization, but there aren't any employees today, and, and it's not making any revenue. Um, and that was sad. So here's some lessons from that. Failure uh, is a good teacher, but it sucks. It totally sucks. It was awful. Firing your friends is awful. And it's, guess what? If you get into doing startups, you will fire someone you really like. Probably, unless you're really, really lucky. But I've had to do it more than once. And I had really good friends who were hoping to make money off of being with this very, very hardworking. We worked our butts off, and people were expecting to get paid. And I mean, they got their salaries, but they, their, their stock didn't become worth anything. And it was, that was tough. Um, also, I learned to do something that matters. I didn't care enough, at least in retrospect, I didn't care enough about advertising as a, as a vertical 
to feel like, oh, well, at least I, at least I did something I loved. <laughs> you know, it was television advertising. It wasn't curing cancer or making clean water or saving the environment. And I, I'm not sure, because I can't know, uh, but I think that maybe it would have been a little bit less painful to have gone, all, gone through that without being able, also having to say, well, gee, all that for television advertising. Huh. Um, in the end, friendships usually prevail. So there were some, as I said, I had to fire some friends, and I had some people who were pissed off with me, and which was incredibly hurtful and, and no fun. And um, years, a couple years later, now they're my friends again. Most of them, like there's a couple holdouts, and that's well, fuck them. Um, but you know, <laughs> um, but but for the most part, these people are my friends, and you know we've come back around. And people look back and they say, God, we we really did some great stuff there, and wow, that was a really good team, and I feel good. And the the, the my proudest accomplishment in all these three companies, by far, with, without question, are the teams that I built. And at Spotrunner, just like People PC, just like Firefly. I've got people who consider themselves alumni of those companies and people who say, wow, that team that you built at, at Spotrunner, like, that was the best team in Los Angeles. Those guys rocked. And you know, we, didn't, we didn't pull it off, but, but it was... Um, I have those people come to me all the time and say, I, that, that taught me so much. That was so important to me. That was, I am where I am today because of that experience. And you know, it's, that's, that's good to hear. So... Um, that's most of it. Uh, life goes on. Um, as John said, I've, I've become, I've moved over to the other side. Um, and I, I heard someone describe this. I think it was John Borthwick, but I'm not sure, uh, an investor who said that going from being a founder to being an investor is like going from being a parent to being a grandparent. You get to hand the baby back at the end of the day, which is something I'm kind of enjoying. Um, I get to spend a lot of time with startups and, and help them build. Um, but I don't have quite the agita and headache and pain that I that I had when I was actually operating. Um, which is not to say I'll never do it again, but not for a little while. So I leave you with this, um, and I just think it's a cool quote, and I think it applies. It's Arthur Ashe, smart guy. Start where you are. You know, you can't make yourself born into a rich family if you weren't. You can't. You know, if you're at UCSB, you're not at Long Beach. You know, <laughs> you are where you are. Use what you have. You know, a lot of things that went right for me are things that just sort of appeared, like Nick sitting two seats away from me on a plane, or me meeting a professor from MIT, or you know, some professor from David Wessel coming to work at Cal. These little things I was able to latch onto and make something of, um, and uh, and do what you can. So that's it. All right, guys, so let's use the microphone for questions so we can get it on video. Question over here. We've got another microphone over there. Oh, we got one over here. Hi, I'm sorry. I was just kind of leaning left. but oh. Hi, yeah, right. so you said uh, when you are starting Firefly, you and your buddy Nick, had this idea, and then there was, I think, the group from MIT that had the same idea, kind of, or right? Well, they had the... And you guys, and you guys came together, right? Uh-huh. My question is, uh, what were the roadblocks that came along with that? I mean, there had to be some, I feel like, and how did you overcome those? So there were definitely... So, yeah, so to, the, other, the other team was had a slightly twist. It was the same technology, and it was the team that had developed and invented this underlying collaborative filtering technology. Their idea was not a music recommendation service. Their idea was to be a, collaboration, a collaborative filtering technology company, like it's more like a software company. Um, and none of them was um, business trained. So I think that helped that, that the, there was some synergy, there was some, some newness in the, in the team. Um, but it was hard. You know, the biggest problem to overcome was dilution. You, you, You've split the pie more ways. You have to live with that, the fact that you're going to get less. Um, and we had people tell us, like I said, like like very well respected investors, that it was a bad idea. Uh, but we really liked each other, and it and it did work out. And you know, I, I would say that that there was a 
subset of us that became closer and remain closer through the, you know, the people whose weddings I've been to, and um, but but it, it ended up working, and you know the the biggest roadblock was just sort of getting everybody in the same room to and agreeing to go for it. We used to have, in, <laughs> we spent a lot of time working on. That, back in those days, you'd actually make a business plan, which people don't really do anymore. And we had these endless meetings where we actually had Quaker beads that we had handed around to, to decide who could talk and who had to shut up. It was, it was really interesting. Um, yeah. Is this on? Oh, cool. Um, how did you make the transition right here? Where are you? Right here. Oh, hi. Um, how did you make the transition from? working with music technology to going into business and being an entrepreneur, was that just kind of natural for you? Um, so I didn't, like I said, I didn't really think I was going to become an entrepreneur. And Firefly had the benefit of being about music. Um, so I, I at least had an excuse for myself. I mean, I, I sort of knew when I, when I sat down with this guy, Nick, and said, we're, we're going to go make a company, that that company might be something other than music. And I had a pretty good idea that I probably didn't want to be a professional musician. But it, it really helped that that first company was around the subject area of music. And that sort of was the, you know, was the transition part of it. And because of my creative background, because I had done music composition, I got to call myself, because when you make your own, ti- when you make your own company, you can make your own title. So I called myself creative director, and I ran the, the visual design and all the front end and front end coding of the site. When I say ran, I meant did. There's an important lesson there, too, that can't be emphasized enough. They started out as a music site, but as you know from what David told us, that really the reason Microsoft bought them really had little to do with music. It had to do with this passport idea. So, again, just do. Like if you had, if they, if you know, if Nick and David had sat around forever trying to think of the ultimate end game, they'd still be sitting around that kitchen table. What is Nick doing? You know, we, we're still really good friends. We, we share an office, and he's doing a bunch of, a bunch of stuff, investing. And, yeah, we share an office. I'm, I'm off on this new thing. You know, we, 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 we both have different things that we want to do, so, but we still do them in, in proximity. Oh, that's yep. Yeah, it's hard. Once you get a, a co-founder like that, it's like you're like swans. You can never, you're kind of monogamous, for, or not necessarily monogamous, but you're together forever. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any advice for any of these folks that want to go out and start their own business now and they're looking for investment capital? I mean, we know it's tough when you don't have the experience, you don't have the track record. But if someone were to come to you, what would you be looking for? Well, you know that. I know. You, they can hear it from me. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's since, since Firefly, things have gotten a lot cheaper for most companies. The cost of launching a company has, you know... We really needed that million bucks when we got it from Atlas because we needed to buy our own computers and we needed to have you know, all this infrastructure that didn't exist. And just to get off the ground, we needed a certain amount of capital. That amount of capital has just plummeted in the last 20 years or 18 years. And so these days, people like John and me, I, I think, expect for a new founder and a new idea, unless it's a capital-intensive business, like something in clean tech or or store, you know, something that involves lots of inventory, we expect to see something working. Um, because if you can't make something working with your credit card and, you know, a little bit of scraping by, then, then you know, we have to ask ourselves why. I think that's fair. Which, again, goes back to just do, right? Don't yeah. wait for someone to yeah. give you money to start your business. Just start your business. Yeah. Can I say, if I say just do it, then Nike's going to sue I me, know, right? I know, I know. Just do. That one's been do. taking swoosh. Yeah. All right, David. I used to say lean in, but Cheryl Sandberg now owns that. (laughs) Yes. For better or for worse, I think for worse. All right, we have one more question here. We'll make this the last one. Uh, Wait, wait for the mic, please. So multiple times you worked abroad, and what was it like working in a different country? I think everybody should go live and work in a different country if they if they have the opportunity because I think it's you, you learn it's it's just extremely helpful to see how other people think of the world and and really even in a country like France or or the Netherlands you know countries that are western and they you know, are very in many ways very similar to ours they have different views on certain things and to see those 
views makes you kind of self-reflective and understand how you, you know, some things that we don't really think about at all. Um, I'll give you an example that has absolutely nothing to do with technology. In Amsterdam, my wife got pregnant with our second child. And with our first child and our third child, you get this, this scan in this country. It's called a transnuchal fold scan. And it checks a fetus really early for, um, for certain deformities that can cause terrible things. And it's, it's like a screening test. And so when we got pregnant in Amsterdam, or when she got pregnant in Amsterdam, we went to the doctor. We said, we want to have our battery of tests, and, uh, and including this one. And they said, you Americans, you, you think of pregnancy as a disease. And it was really eye-opening. Now, we went to England to get the scan, but we still, <laughs> we st- we still had this, you know, this moment like, wow, you really totally don't see it like us, right? And, and I think that that kind of insight is something that you can only really get from being in a different country. So I'm, I'm really happy that I did that, and I might do it again. Thank you. But David, I know you were stepping out of your comfort zone to do this. Is this a compelling question? Is this going to blow us all away? All right, this is the last Uh-oh. one. Could you tell us a little bit about your pets? <laughs> all right. So I have three girls, first pets, uh, five, nine, and ten. I also have three dogs, uh, a little chug, a I don't know what, and a golden retriever. I have three cats. I have five chickens. I have a leopard gecko. I, when I say I, one of my daughters does. I, we, she has a hamster, and I, there's a fish named Sandwich. <laughs> David, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.